In 1 Timothy 2.12, Paul wrote, I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. Does this mean women should never be allowed to preach or teach in the church? Stay tuned to hear what Dr. David K. Bernard has to say about this verse and the role of women in ministry. Welcome to Apostolic Life in the 21st Century, a podcast dedicated to helping modern-day believers live out the teachings of the first-century church. This podcast is part of the teaching ministry of Dr. David K. Bernard. Dr. Bernard has dedicated his life to studying the Bible and helping believers apply its message to their daily lives. Thank you for joining us for this episode. In 1 Timothy 2.12, Paul wrote, But I suffer not a woman to teach, nor to usurp authority over the man, but to be in silence. So those who believe that women should never be ordained to be teachers or preachers, or to have any sort of public pulpit ministry at least, they cite this verse as one of their primary arguments. However, the United Pentecostal Church International, we do ordain women to preach and for pulpit ministry. How does the UPCI reconcile this verse, 1 Timothy 2.12, with their, their practice of ordaining women to, into the ministry? Is there a biblical case to be made for this? For ordaining women, in certainly the we do believe it's biblical for women uh, to preach and teach the gospel of Jesus Christ. So let me step back and give you kind of a broad historical perspective, and then I'll give you a biblical perspective. In the early centuries, it appeared that women were prominently used in ministry, and especially uh, the original Christian churches were in homes, so there wasn't the you know public uh, building and stage and pulpit. And so it was quite natural for a woman to uh, lead uh, in her own home, for example, and to lead her family and her friends and her neighbors and to share the gospel with them. So in the early centuries, when you study church history, it seems that women were prominently used. But as the church became more institutionalized, uh, the move of the Spirit diminished. So when the gifts of the Spirit and the calling of God is prominent, uh, the, the move of the Spirit, then women's anointing becomes evident and, and they're used. But when the church lost the Spirit, became more public, more institutionalized, formalized, it conformed to the secular culture for public meetings. And so as the Catholic Church developed, uh, it never allowed women to be preachers or priests and still doesn't today. The early Protestant churches followed suit coming out of the Catholic Church. Uh, but then in, when there are revival movements, it's very interesting. Whenever there are revival movements, moves of the Spirit, that's when women had prominent roles because it wasn't based on institution or culture. It was based on gifts and callings and anointings of God. So the early Methodist movement, women began preaching. The holiness movement, women began preaching. Pentecostal movement, women began preaching. So at the beginning of the Pentecostal movement, the, the first oneness organization, the first list of ministers we have in the oneness Pentecostal movement, it comes from 1919, based on the first names of the people, or in some cases, the title Mrs., 29% of the credential preachers on that first list of oneness Pentecostal preachers were women. When the United Pentecostal Church was formed in 1945, the very first list we have is from 1946, 21% of the ministers were women in our own UPC, and that included the wife of our uh, first general superintendent, Howard Goss. Uh, so uh, we have a history of that. Now, whether that's right or wrong, we, we need to talk about. 
But when we go to Scripture, we do have to look at the whole of Scripture because uh, a prominent example would be if you want to support Trinitarian baptism, you go to Matthew 28, 19. It says, baptize in the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit. It says what it means. It means what it says. End of subject. We don't have to look at any other Scripture. There it is, black and white. But we say, hold on just a minute. When you read the whole of Scripture, you find that the apostles consistently baptized in the name of Jesus Christ throughout the book of Acts. You find the epistles always refer back to the Jesus name formula. So with that in mind, what does Matthew 28, 19 mean? And we focus on the name singular that fulfills Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. From the rest of Scripture, it's obvious. It's Jesus. And in Jesus dwells all the fullness of the Godhead bodily. So that's how we look at one Scripture in isolation. So let's take the case of women in ministry. When you look at the whole of Scripture, you'll find God used women in the Old Testament. Yes, it was predominantly a patriarchal culture, so men typically had leadership roles. But you have a number of women who are identified as prophets or female prophets, prophetesses. You have Isaiah's wife. You had Huldah, the prophetess who who prophesied to King Josiah. And it specifically says, uh, it identifies her as the wife, I think it's of Shalom. So she wasn't in rebellion against her husband. He was uh, he was uh, identified as the leader of the home. I think the scripture's clear because typically when it introduced a prophet like Isaiah or, or um, you know, you name any other prophet, Amos or Elijah, it doesn't say who was the husband of so-and-so. <laughs> But Huldah being the wife of, I think the scriptures make a point. She was a good wife. She followed the spiritual leadership of her husband in the home, but that did not preclude her from being a prophet. Who And, and she was under subjection to the king. She obeyed her king. But yet she could be a preacher to the king and to the whole nation, including her own husband. And yet that didn't violate scripture. And then we find this amazing example, the book of Judges chapter 4, Deborah, was a judge, which is the civil leader of the nation of Israel, and a prophet, which is a spiritual leader. Of all the other judges, only Samuel is also called a prophet. So she was unusual as a spiritual leader as well as the civic leader. And some have said, well, God used her because no man would do the job. You know, Barak said, I'm not going to go to war without you. But the point is, she wasn't appointed during the war. She was already a judge. And so, so no, there were thousands of men in Israel who could have been judges, but God chose Deborah. So even though you might say, well, that's exceptional, the fact that God would do it show it's not violating a scriptural principle or a creation principle. Uh, we do believe that the husband uh, should be the head of the home, but we do believe that, that essentially the marriage is a partnership. But that does not limit a wife from having a role that God chooses. And again, in the case of Deborah, it says she was a mother and it says she was the husband of the wife of uh, her husband, Lapidoth. So once again, I think scripture is being intentional. She didn't violate the proper uh, guidelines for the home. She followed her husband's godly leadership, but yet she exercised this role. Now you find that precedent already established in the Old Testament. So if it was wrong for women to be a leader or a preacher or a prophet or spokesman for God, it wouldn't have happened one time in Scripture, at least not with God's approval. But multiple times, it's with God's approval. When you come to the New Testament, in Acts 2, 
there is an expansion of ministry under the new covenant and specifically says your sons and your daughters shall prophesy. Prophecy speaking for God. Now, it could be just a momentary thing such as inspiration of the moment, an utterance, but you find examples in the New Testament. So in Romans 16, now this is the Apostle Paul. He's writing and giving greetings to the church at Rome, and he mentions a number of women who are workers in the gospel, and he uses the same Greek titles for them that he uses for males. So you have in Romans 16, Phoebe, who's a servant, literally deacon of the church. Now, whether he was using it generically or in the in the sense of deacon, as in other passages of the New Testament, and she was a supporter, a protector of the church. She had a prominent role. In fact, he used her to deliver his, his letter. Uh, so she was an emissary of Paul. And then he mentions Priscilla and Aquila. They're mentioned in five different places in the New Testament. And whenever the connotation is the family, Aquila is mentioned first. But whenever it's talking about their ministry, Priscilla is mentioned first. Well, it's unusual for the woman's name to even mention at all, and doubly unusual for the woman's name to be mentioned first, indicating that she had the leading ministerial role. Well, he says Priscilla and Aquila were his fellow workers and that they were um, they had a church in their home. So at the least, they were joint husband and wife we find uh, as pastors we find from acts 18 that they jointly taught apollos a leading preacher and led him into truth and again priscilla's mentioned first uh, so she was definitely a christian teacher and a christian pastor then paul mentions andronicus and junia andronicus is a masculine name junia is a feminine name we don't have much information about them. I presume by being mentioned together, they must have been husband and wife. Uh, they wouldn't have been an unmarried uh, male-female team. But he says they were notable apostles, and they had risked their lives for the gospel. So they, they were. he used the term apostle for them. Then later, he mentions several other uh, women like Tryphena and Tryphosa and says they were co-workers in the gospel using the same terms he used in other places for men. So here we have these different titles. Um, and then uh, uh, Acts 21, Philip, the evangelist, had four, four daughters who prophesied. They regularly prophesied. So apostle, prophet, pastor, teacher, uh, co-worker, Deacon, all of these technical terms the New Testament used for ministries of various kinds, all were used for women. So in that context, and um, and there, there are two passages of Scripture that would seem to limit women, the one you mentioned and the one in 1 Corinthians. Now, for a full discussion, I've got three chapters in my book, The Apostolic Church in the 21st Century, which goes into much greater detail than I can do here. But... Um, you find a passage, 1 Corinthians 14, which is talking about disruption in the church. It talks about uh, disruption caused by people indiscriminately speaking in tongues with no interpretation. So it gives guidelines for that. It's not forbidding tongues, but it's proper use of tongues in the public service. Then it talks about women asking questions of their husbands. Apparently, some women were disrupting the service 
And so he says, be silent in the church, ask questions at home. It's not an absolute prohibition, but it's regulation for some problem that existed in the church. But we know it's not absolute because Paul had already said in 1 Corinthians 11, if a woman is going to pray or prophesy in church, she should have her head covered and her long hairs a covering. So he's basically saying women can preach, prophesy, pray in public worship, but they need to do so as women, as feminine not as imitation men, not usurping the male role, but in the feminine role. So with that in mind, when you come to 1 Timothy 2, uh, if you read the whole book, Paul is dealing with a problem of false teaching in the church at Ephesus. He has appointed Timothy as a young minister to go to the church at Ephesus, take charge. Probably Timothy isn't married, and so there's an issue in the church. And then he says, I don't allow a woman to teach or usurp authority. So that it's a rare word in, in the Greek. And I actually think the King James translates it better than a lot of other translations because it's not just having authority, but usurping, taking authority wrongfully. And it could be that the teaching and usurping authority is combined to usurp authority to teach. And it mentions a woman singular. So he could have a particular woman in mind. So here's the context I see. Timothy's a young minister, probably single. He's supposed to take charge of this church. And here's a woman, a prominent woman in the church, that she is causing problems by teaching false doctrine. And she's probably married. Her husband's probably prominent as well. Timothy doesn't know what to do. And so Paul says, look, Timothy, you might be young. You might be single. You don't want to interfere with another man's wife. But in this case... I don't allow a woman like that to teach or take authority. So, Timothy, you need to take authority. And then he used the example of Adam and Eve, which some people say, well, this is an absolute rule. No, he's using a very specific example. Adam knew the truth. He told Eve what God had said. Eve said, let's do something different. Adam should have said, Eve, be quiet. Don't talk about violating God's word. We need to follow God's word. But instead... Adam said, okay, I'll go along. Now, that doesn't mean all women are, are deceivers. It doesn't mean no women can teach, but he, Paul was using that as an example. So, Timothy, here's this woman. Don't make the same mistake Adam said was, okay, you're a prominent woman in the church. Your husband is supporting you, so I'll just leave you alone. No, take authority. Say, no, you can't teach this false doctrine. That's contrary to God's word. Sit down. Be silent. Be quiet. And so that's what he was saying. And so that would not apply to all women, but it would apply to any woman who's teaching doctrine contrary to the church or who is trying to take authority over the proper authority of the church. That, But if a woman is under authority, so if she's married, she follows the godly leadership of her husband in the home, and she follows the godly established leadership of the church, follows the established doctrine of the church, then she is free to minister. She can prophesy as Acts 2 says. She can prophesy as 1 Corinthians 11 says. She can hold offices such as uh, mentioned in Romans chapter 16. So that's why the United Pentecostal Church International ordains women. When we look at the whole of Scripture and especially the New Testament, including specifically the example of the Apostle Paul, he endorsed women in ministry. So just because he gave one instruction for handling a problematic situation, we should not allow that to override everything else Scripture says and everything else Paul himself said and did.
Now, one final thing uh, in First Corinthians, First uh, Timothy three, when Paul gives qualifications for a bishop, which uh, in the New Testament context would be like a senior pastor, he said he should be the husband of one wife, and his children should be an objection. So some people say, "See, husband of one wife uh, has to be a husband, has to be a man," but they're missing the bigger picture. Yes, Paul is using the typical example: uh, husband, a, a man who's married who has children. So. Given that example, yes, he should be. So he's speaking against polygamy, and he's speaking for faithfulness in marriage. But that is setting a principle. Using that typical example is not meant to be exclusive. If you say it's meant to be exclusive, then he has to have children, plural. He has to have a wife, plural. So no single man could qualify. No man who is divorced because of scriptural principles because his wife left him. Um, No man who's widowed. Uh, no man who's married and has no children, or he only has one child, but he doesn't have children. Uh, so if you're gonna if you're gonna say that typical example is meant to be an exclusive, exhaustive definition, then you wouldn't allow Paul to be a preacher. You would not allow Jesus to be a preacher, and you you would only allow preachers who are currently married to one wife who never been divorced, or never been widowed, or never been remarried, and who have at least two children who are living for God. <laughs> then they could be a preacher. That's clearly not what Paul meant because he wasn't trying to exclude him, himself from being a preacher. Uh, so I think that's going off on the wrong track. I think if you look at the whole of Scripture, there's adequate justification uh, for both men and women. If we are under authority and if we follow our proper gender distinction as given by God, then, yes, we can have a ministry that's given by God and also recognized by the church. Thank you for listening to this episode of Apostolic Life in the 21st Century. If you enjoy this podcast, please take a moment to give us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcast app. We also appreciate it when you share Apostolic Life in the 21st Century with a friend or family member. And make plans to join us again next time as we look at how the Bible applies to everyday life.